I'm Abby Nemec, and this is A Time for Horses. Many people have sighed for the good old days and regretted the passing of the horse. But today, when only those who like horses own them, it is a far better time for horses. C.W. Anderson You're listening to a podcast about people and horses. Each episode, I take a look at a true story that connects somehow to horses, horse people, or the horse business. I'll tell you the story, sure, but I'm also going to tell you why I think it's a story worth telling. So, set the cruise control, step onto the treadmill, pick up a pitchfork, or pour another cup of coffee. I've got a story to tell you. Episode 5, Occident. This is a story that in some ways is not about horses at all, but I'm going to make the case that there is a horse in nearly every part of it. I think by the time we're done, you're going to see that our central character, though he didn't affect the horse, he wasn't a horseman and to be perfectly honest, had little more interest in horses than he did in people, which wasn't much. Nonetheless, our central character changed everything about what you see when you watch a horse move. My sources for this story are primarily online. There are many and varied resources, and they disagree constantly because there are so many legends tied to it. For an anchor to the tale, I've chosen one well-researched and fact-checked book, but there are many more books, films long and short, and even an opera, if you want more. You'll find information on the sources I've used, as well as some pictures and a few other resources, in the show notes at atimeforhorses.com forward slash Occident. This is the first part of a two-part story about a man who, because of the things he did and the both clever and peculiar ways that he did them, changed forever the way we see horses. In his time, he was a household name, for a number of different reasons, and he left us with an astonishing catalog of work. But like many of the world's great innovators, the things we know him for now were recognized in large part after his death. Let's begin in the middle of the 19th century. Our central character is a young man who had been born in 1830 at Kingston-on-Thames near London, England, as Edward James Muggeridge. By the time he emigrated to New York at the age of 21, he was known by the name of Ted Muggeridge. He stayed for a time in New York, making himself known as an agent for the London Printing and Publishing Company. It didn't take long before he began to look toward the land of opportunity. It had been only a few years, after all, since the great California gold rush of 1849, and that western state was beginning to bloom. In 1855, Muggeridge relocated to San Francisco and established himself as a successful bookseller. It was there that he changed his name, for the first time, to Edward Mybridge. By 1860, he determined to return home to England, for a time, to visit his mother and purchase some antiquarian books for resale. He arranged with his brother Thomas Muggeridge to take over the shop and made preparations to leave. Up until this point, 
He was just another young man looking for his next enterprise. Mybridge had planned to sail on a ship called the Golden Age, which was to leave port on the 5th of June, 1860, for Panama. From there, he would take the usual overland route across the Isthmus of Panama, and then once on the East Coast, make plans to set sail for England. In a fateful change of plans, it turned out that he missed the departure of the Golden Age, and instead booked passage on a stagecoach operated by the Butterfield Overland Mail Company for St. Louis. He would travel by rail from there to the East Coast. Edward Mybridge certainly knew that he was off on somewhat of an adventure, because he had sold his store, lock, stock, and bookshelves, to his brother before leaving. You can imagine the uncertainty involved in long journeys in those days. He was about to cross the entire North American continent and the Atlantic Ocean, and had plans to spend time at home in England developing his international trade. He may have expected his prospects to change, or been uncertain if he would return at all. Now, I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tangent here, but I think you'll understand in a couple of minutes. In our daily lives, you and I are surrounded by photographs and video, still pictures, and moving pictures. It's a constant deluge. I can, with my phone, record a video of a galloping horse and then play it back, speed it up or slow it down, pausing and reviewing, even taking a snapshot from the recording in mere moments. You can pull up a web browser and see a photo finish of an important race, or the last seconds of the Super Bowl in a matter of seconds. We are exceedingly well exposed to movement, and equestrians around the world are very familiar with what a horse's legs do when it's moving. We can't unsee what we've seen. Riding students are taught about the three or four natural gates of the horse. In order to comfortably learn to move in harmony with the animal, it helps the learning rider to have a sense of what the horse is doing to create locomotion. The slowest gait, the natural flat walk, is a grounded gait, with the horse keeping two or three feet at a time on the ground as it moves, just like humans walking. Each hoof creates a distinct beat as the horse walks. As the horse speeds up, the next natural gait is a trot, with the limbs swinging forward in diagonal pairs and the horse bouncing from pair to pair through a moment of suspension, when no limb is touching the ground. This is the closest analogy to what you do as a two-legged person when you run. The trot is the trickiest gait to learn to ride comfortably, pretty much because of this moment of suspension. But once it's mastered, the rider can manage to sit or rise up and down during the trot gait quite comfortably. The walk and the trot are both symmetrical, with both the left and the right sides doing the same thing in turn. The faster two gaits are the canter and the gallop. These are not symmetrical. The horse performs each of these gates on either the left or right lead. Ironically, the leg we call leading is actually the last one to land on the ground in the cycle, but as with so many things about the way we talk about horses, it's just one of those things we say. In the canter, the first leg to step on the ground is the non-leading hind leg. This is usually the outside leg on a curve, so if a horse is turning left, the first canter step is taken by the right hind leg. If it helps for me to explain in automotive terms, the first step is taken by the passenger side rear wheel. After that, 
the diagonal pair lands. With the horse on the left lead, this would be the left-hind-right-front pair, which land together in the natural canter. Finally, the left-front or left-fore-leg lands on the ground, the right-hind comes up, followed by the diagonal pair, and then the leading leg lifts off as the horse swings through the air with all four legs gathered up underneath and no foot on the ground. The cycle then begins again with the non-leading hind leg. The horse's gallop is almost the same as the canter, except that, in order to produce more speed, the landing of the diagonal pair is not united. The left lead gallop would thus be right hind, left hind, right fore, left fore, with the leading leg landing last, followed by a single moment of suspension. We know this to be true because we can see it in photographs. And because we can see it, and we know it, we can absolutely feel what's happening when we ride. The impact of each hoof and the moment of suspension are clear as crystal when you know what you're feeling. The sensation is one of the animal's hindquarters making contact with the ground, the body rocking forward onto the forelegs, and then a moment of flight when the horse seems to swing forward under the rider. It feels very much like a child's swing or a rocking horse. <laughs> Not really by accident, I guess. <laughs> we are so accustomed to this knowledge and this feel as riders that it's surprisingly difficult to believe that the movement of the horse's limbs during locomotion was not always so well understood. As a matter of fact, it was once a hotly debated point of contention. You see, we didn't always have the ability to stop motion. That superpower has really only come to us in the last 150 years or so. Before then, images were captured through the eye of a person, who then drew, painted, carved, or sculpted what they saw, what they believe they saw. From the time of the very first cave paintings created by human hands, we recorded human activity, objects, and animals that interacted with us. Wherever you are, you see the horse standing still or walking around slowly with its feet very much on the ground. One forefoot or one hind foot might be lifted. When the horse moves from this slow pace off into a fast canter or a gallop, he does so by sitting back onto his haunches and lifting both four hooves up and then pushing quickly off into the gallop. The rider who doesn't have great saddle technology would much rather do this than trot off in a bouncy gait and gradually speed up to a canter. That isn't very comfortable. So the primitive artist has often seen a horse poised to move off by crouching its hind legs and lifting the forelegs to the front. Once that horse gallops off, all you might see from the back is the soles of his hind hooves. It's also easy to generalize the bounding gait of smaller, slow-moving animals like a rabbit or a dog. Consider the postures assumed by a horse when starting out or hopping over something, and you might arrive at the idea that a horse's natural gait is a bounding gallop as well. In the study of art history, this depiction is known as the flying gallop, and it's applied to many animals besides the ones I've mentioned. As people began to travel the world more commonly during the 17th and 18th centuries, archaeological artifacts and pieces of art began to travel with them, and the Far Eastern motif of the flying gallop was brought new again to Western Europe. 
this stylistic representation was adopted by artists of the Renaissance who were seeking to capture life in motion as best they could. This situation, with artists as the recorders of visual images depicting what they see through the filter of what they know, with their 19th century understanding of the world, provided a vivid backdrop for the development of an absolutely revolutionary technology. The principle of using a small hole to capture an image on a canvas or a wall, a technique known eventually as camera obscura, was known to artists as early as the turn of the first millennium. Artists who painted or drew their work onto canvas, and eventually paper, would use this method to aid them in producing remarkably lifelike work by hand. It is known that some Renaissance painters used the camera obscura, but many of them hid the fact, so as not to be accused of sorcery. The way this works is a little more complicated than I think you want to hear about right now, but there's a link to some interesting background on it in the show notes. Technology for capturing images within the camera progressed over time, so that by the middle of the 19th century, there were a handful of people who had developed various chemical processes to store permanently the light cast by the image in the camera onto a piece of coated glass. That would be a negative image, though. Light shining on it would turn the chemicals dark, and without light, the surface would remain clear. This way, you get a negative. The negative image captured on the glass could then be transferred again onto treated paper by creating a double negative or a positive image, dark in the dark areas and light in the light areas. Even better, the glass could be reused and multiple pictures made from it. This was very exciting, and before long, it was seen as a way to come closer to the ideal of realism in art, to capture reality in a permanent image. At first, this photo process, as they called it, was exceedingly slow, making it impossible to capture anything that moved. In 1827, the first photographic image was made with eight hours exposure to the light by Joseph Nicephore Niepce in France. As the various processes were refined, that time was reduced to just a few minutes. And when the wet collodion process was developed in 1851, an image could be recorded in a couple of seconds. The equipment was bulky and the process complicated, but it wasn't long before photographers were looking to take pictures of anything beautiful that would hold still to have its picture made. Just a brief aside, collodion is an interesting substance. It's made from cellulose dissolved in ether and alcohol, and it was first used during the Crimean War as a wound dressing. It's a thin gel that was well-suited to coating the glass plate and holding the photosensitive layer to the glass in wet plate photography, but it dries quickly after application. Collodion still has many uses today, including to make scars and theatrical makeup, as the base for wart removal liquid, and in its original use, as a wound dressing. As photo technology improved, it became very fashionable to have one's portrait made and the photographic image joined books, newspapers, posters, and other printed materials to become a part of the public communications media of the time. Photographs were still limited to printing by the slow and expensive photo process, and so they couldn't be included directly in anything that was mass-produced. That would have to wait until the 1880s to become more widespread. 
Even so, as the Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroads began in 1863 to work from the east and west toward a junction in Utah, photography of the vast landscapes of the Great West lit the American imagination on fire. It was around this same time that a young bookseller in San Francisco was beginning to look for broader horizons. And when he missed the departure of the Golden Age in early June 1860, he left instead on July 2nd, taking the Butterfield Overland stage for St. Louis. Tragically, on a steep mountainside in East Texas, the stagecoach driver lost control of the horses, and a horrible crash followed. Arthur Shimomura is a psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley, and some of his writing has focused on Mybridge's mental condition. In a piece called Mybridge in Motion, he provides the following telegraph message from the San Francisco Daily Evening Bulletin a month after the crash on August 7th. Quote, the stage left Mountain Station with several passengers besides the driver and Mr. Stout, a roadmaster in the employ of the Overland Company, who was acting as conductor. On leaving the stable, the driver cracked his whip and the horses immediately started on a run. When they arrived at the brow of the mountain, the brakes were applied, but were found to be useless. In his efforts to stop the horses, the driver drove out off the road and they came in collision with a tree, literally smashing the coach in pieces, killing one man and injuring every other person on the stage to a greater or less extent. End quote. Mybridge had no personal recollection of the accident, but had been told by another passenger that as the horses were running away, he had been in the act of cutting the canvas on the back of the coach and was attempting to make a jump at the time of the crash. Mybridge was in a coma for nine days, and he suffered seizures, double vision, and the loss of taste and smell for months. Shimomura continues, quote, Mybridge reported that his first recollection following the accident was lying in a bed with a small wound on the top of my head at Fort Smith, Arkansas, about 150 miles away from the accident. He managed to continue on another stagecoach to St. Louis and took a train to New York where he consulted Dr. Parker, a prominent East Coast physician and president of the New York Academy of Medicine. It was reported that Dr. Parker told Mybridge that he was permanently injured. After two months on the East Coast, Mybridge traveled to England, where he consulted Sir William Gull, who was Queen Victoria's physician, and treated patients at Guy's Hospital in London. Mybridge stayed in England for five or six years, recuperating from his accident. End quote. We know a little bit about those years in England, we do know that he filed suit against the Butterfield Stage Company in New York before he left. We know that he lost a large amount of money in the English banking crisis of 1865. We also know that he applied for two patents, one for an improved method of and apparatus for plate printing, which related to his interest in book publishing, and another for machinery or apparatus for washing clothes and other textile articles. We also understand that he took up photography during this time, and he exhibited some photographs at the Great London Exhibition of 1862. Those who knew him said that his personality was never the same following the head injury. 
The reports of the crash and his recovery are all consistent with a severe traumatic injury to the frontal lobe of his brain, which is often linked to impulsive and irrational behavior. He did eventually return to San Francisco in 1866, and he joined an established photographer, Silas Selleck, in business. It seems that this is when he began regular travels to Yosemite. Mybridge's approach to landscape photography, which he loved, was, in a way, a bit obsessive. He was not afraid to take risks to get a shot, finding any way he could to get himself and his assistants into areas that other photographers wouldn't use. He's often seen in his images, sitting atop a cliff or beside a waterfall, and his assistants reported lowering the man and his heavy equipment into place to capture just the right view. He was a persistent sort. Now, when I say heavy equipment, I'm not joking. Photographic technology at the time involved a chemical layer, an emulsion upon a piece of glass. That layer would be exposed to the light and then quickly rushed into a chemical bath so that the image captured could be revealed and fixed in place. The best, clearest, and fastest process available required a wet piece of glass. A wet plate collodion emulsion. The chemicals all had to be right nearby so that the processing could be done immediately. Remember that all of this had to be done in the dark as well. So when we talk about the challenge of landscape photography in remote locations, the struggle was real. It was a very short time, within a year or two, before Mybridge was advertising his images of Yosemite, San Francisco, and other parts of California under the pseudonym of Helios. This was a name that he had adopted from one of his European mentors in photography, and it refers to the Greek word for sun. Edward Mybridge also changed his own name one last time, reverting to the old Anglo-Saxon spelling that he recalled from his childhood, E-A-D-W-E-A-R-D, though he still signed his photos as Helios. It's spelled Edweird, but pronounced the same, Edward. If he had done nothing else in his career— Helios's landscape photography and the further work he did in Central America, Alaska, for the War Department, and photos of the Union Pacific Railroad under construction would have been enough to make him a legend in 19th century photography. He had truly found his calling. But Edward Mybridge was just 40 years old, and he had much left to do. Mybridge transitioned his business association multiple times, but two were notable. First was to the Knoll Brothers studio, where he met a young woman by the name of Flora Shawcross Stone, who worked in the shop retouching photographs. She had a colorful past, and when they met, she was estranged from the wealthy young man she had married at age 16. Edward and Flora courted for some time. It might be said that Flora courted Edward while she obtained her divorce at the age of 20. Of course, Mybridge was single and well-known, and had the resources to support her, and the young lady found him to be an eligible candidate for second husband, in spite of their 22-year age difference. Edward and Flora were married in 1871, and transitioned together to the firm of Bradley and Rulofsen within a couple of years. By this time, Mybridge was considered one of the premier artists, if not the leading photographer of the time, in California. 
His landscape photographs were popular nationwide, and the three-dimensional images that could be seen with a stereoscopic viewer brought his scenes to life. Or nearly so. That would come later. Because of Mybridge's frequent assignments, he was often out of town, to far-flung destinations, sometimes for months at a time, and Flora found it pleasant to frequent the theater while he was away. Her usual companion was a local drama critic, Major Harry Larkins. After two stillborn children, the Mybridge couple had a son in April of 1874, whom Edward proudly named Florado Helios Mybridge. Sadly, his joy was short-lived, as it was only a few days later that Mybridge's mother passed away in England. Within a few months, he was hit by another devastating loss when he learned that Major Larkins was actually the father of young Florado. The events that followed are stunning. Mybridge reeled with the news. The next day, he went to his colleague, William Rolofson, and settled his affairs. He went home and collected his personal revolver, which he carried on his trips into the wilderness. He knew that Larkins was working in Calistoga, so he took a ferry to Vallejo, a train to Calistoga, and a hired horse and buggy for the eight-mile trip to the Yellow Jacket Mine. He knocked at the back door and asked for Larkins. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, when Larkins came to the door, he stated, quote, I am Mybridge, and this is a message from my wife, end quote, before he aimed his Smith & Wesson number 2 at Harry Larkins and fired once. The murder trial was held from the 3rd to the 5th of February, 1875, in Vallejo, California. Mybridge's defense requested a not-guilty verdict on the ground of both justifiable homicide and insanity due to his brain injury. The jury would prefer to acquit, but they did not judge Mybridge insane and felt the murder had been premeditated. According to the judge's charge to the jury, Mybridge was guilty, but in the end, the jury acquitted him for the murder of Harry Larkins, ignoring the judge's charge. According to Shimamura, it is believed that this case was the last one in California in which a murder charge was acquitted on the jury's explicit pronouncement of justifiable homicide. Quote, the sworn testimonies of individuals who described Mybridge's emotional disposition before and after his accident provide important documentation concerning the psychological nature of such injuries. With respect to Mybridge, an understanding of the consequences of his stagecoach accident offers a new historical perspective of his life. As his head injury occurred before any interest in professional photography, questions arise concerning the role it played in his art. Indeed, considering his accomplishments in art, science, and technology, his injury did not appear to affect his mental abilities. Yet, as described below, Mybridge's brain damage apparently had a significant impact on his work and life experiences. End quote. Following the verdict, Mybridge packed his gear and went to Panama, Nicaragua, and Guatemala for 10 months of 1875 to work for the Pacific Mail Steamship Company doing travel photography. While he was away, Flora suffered a brief illness and passed away 
the baby Florado was sent to an orphanage. So it was that Edward Mybridge came to develop his expertise to become one of California's leading photographers, and also a bit of a household name, in the midst of the revolutionary political, cultural, and technological developments that were taking place across the country. You see, the states of California and Nevada had a huge population boom during the 1850s due to the vast riches from the gold rush in Northern California and the silver strikes in Nevada. The Wild West was growing with the tremendous influx of speculators to become more populated and more gentrified. Cities were expanding and trade was increasing through the various ports up and down the coast. Railroad was constructed through Nevada and towards Sacramento in Northern California. As a matter of fact, railroad construction was actually becoming a professional specialty by this time, and, as with photography, the technology for surveying was improving rapidly. Off to the east, the United States was fighting a horrific civil war after the southern states seceded from the Union, the northern states, in 1861. The action removed the Southern politicians in Congress that were lobbying for a Southern railroad across the country, which allowed the North to gain approval for a railroad without their interference. The North had two main reasons to build a transcontinental railroad at this time. First was that they hoped to bind California to the Union so that it would not secede or be taken over by England. They also intended to benefit their ongoing war on the Indians by transporting troops, guns, and supplies across the Great Plains. Theodore Judah was the chief engineer, lobbyist, railroader, and surveyor for the Central Pacific Railroad. Having worked on the Sacramento Valley Railroad, California's first, he was inspired to the idea of building a transcontinental railroad. In 1854, he began a lobbying campaign in Washington for a plan to build a railroad. The survey was completed in 1861, and the Pacific Railway Act was passed in 1862, giving authorization to begin construction. Judah would not live to see the project completed, but his contribution at the outset provided the foundation for certain enterprising men to amass fortunes from this point forward two companies were designated to execute this work, the Union Pacific, commencing from the east in Iowa, and the Central Pacific, commencing from the west in Sacramento. The work would meet in the state of Utah, binding the two coasts of the continent, and shortening the overland coast-to-coast travel time from six hazard-filled months to a mere seven days. The major financiers of the Central Pacific Railroad included one Leland Stanford, who was already a well-established businessman, having done very well for himself in sales of mining supplies and later grocery. When he and his associates incorporated the CPRR in 1861, Stanford was made president of the corporation. It was certainly not coincidence that, although he wasn't elected until 1861, he made his first bid for governor of California in 1859. He served only one term, but that was plenty long enough to sign into law authorizations for the construction of a railroad line east from Sacramento to meet the Union Pacific. However much gold was found in the hills of California— there were much larger fortunes to be made in the railroad business. 
Abraham Lincoln signed the Pacific Railway Act on July 1, 1862, with the goal to knit the West Coast together to the Union's East Coast via the Missouri River. As the work commenced, and then intensified, it became increasingly difficult to find enough workers to maintain progress toward, and then up and over, the Sierra Nevada Mountains. Initially, 50 Chinese immigrants were hired on, and their contribution was so great that by the time the work was complete, 10 to 15,000 Chinese workers had been employed, many of them imported from China specifically for the job. They worked in cruel conditions and severe weather, and survived on meager wages and rations. The contribution of the Chinese immigrants, as well as the few Irish who worked alongside them in making the connection of East to West, cannot be understated. There are no real figures on the casualties from this construction project, because injuries or deaths were literally not recorded, but the Chinese Railroad Workers in North America Project at Stanford University has this to say on the matter. Quote, the Central Pacific did not keep records of the deaths of any workers on the railroad. Some historians estimate from engineering reports, newspaper articles, and other sources that between 50 to 150 Chinese were killed as a result of snowslides, landslides, explosions, falls, and other accidents. Chinese practice was to bury the deceased temporarily and at a later date collect the remains in a box in a ritual fashion. The bones would then be shipped back to China to be reburied in the workers' home village. One newspaper article entitled Bones in Transit of June 30, 1870 in the Sacramento Reporter reported that about 20,000 pounds of bones dug up from shallow graves were taken by train for return to China, calculating that this amounted to 1,200 Chinese. Another article published on the same day in the Sacramento Union stated that only the bones of about 50 Chinese were on the train. Others believe that some Chinese must have also died in a smallpox outbreak among railroad workers, although there are no records if any of the dead were Chinese. In addition, there were reports of Chinese workers being killed in Nevada as the result of Indian raids. Charles Crocker, testifying before Congress after the line was completed, acknowledged that a great many men were lost during construction, and most of those workers were Chinese. End quote. The first Pacific Railway Act provided for each company to receive 10 sections, or 6,400 acres, of public land grants, mineral rights excluded, on each side of the track for each mile of track built. Additional Pacific Railway Acts were passed later that increased the land grants for each company to 20 sections per mile. From 1850 to 1871, the railroads received more than 175 million acres of land, more than one-tenth of the whole United States, courtesy of the U.S. government. The Second Pacific Railway Act also gave the companies rights to the iron and coal deposits on the land grants, and it moved the federal loans to second mortgage status so that the companies could issue first mortgage bonds for sale to private investors. One thing was crystal clear. The value of the railroad was in its completion, since the government payments for construction were only part of the payment. 
It was ownership of the land grants that ran along the railway that would really turn the profit in the end. That said, the idea of conflict of interest was in its infancy, really to be clarified after the turn of the 20th century, and the people in general wanted the railroad so badly that the skimming of funds seemed like a cost of doing business. Under the Pacific Railway Act, the railroad corporations would essentially make contracts with themselves, building in generous profits for their own construction and supply companies at the expense of the railroad. They took some profit coming and going. And remember that in the end, they would own the railway business on the line as well. It was a savvy investment for those few who were in on the deal at the beginning. Although Helios produced a large number of images of the railroad construction, including some 3D stereoscopic images from atop the train, it seemed that he and Stanford never met until later on, when Stanford hired the famous photographer to make pictures of his home and family in the Stanford's mansion. Mybridge didn't particularly care for photographing people's homes and architecture, but the work paid very well, and he was a businessman after all. As president of the Central Pacific, Leland Stanford was given the honorable task of driving the symbolic gold spike on May 10, 1869, to link the first transcontinental railroad at Promontory, Utah. He remained president of the Central Pacific, and later Southern Pacific, until his death in 1890. As much as Stanford loved running the railroad, though, it was incredibly stressful, and when the work started to affect his health, it is said that his doctor suggested he take up a hobby. He became interested in the road driving of horses, sparking a lifelong passion for them. Driving horses, then harness racers, eventually followed by galloping horses, or flat racers. This seems like a convenient moment for me to mention to you, in case you haven't been exposed to this, that horses who race in harness, pulling a sulky, are not all alike. I told you earlier about the trot, that bouncy diagonal gait with two moments of suspension in each full stride. There is another similar gait, known as the pace. This gait is lateral. Both left legs swing forward at the same time, and both right legs swing together afterward. Left, right, left, right, with the horse's body swaying from side to side as it goes. There are, again, two moments of suspension in each stride. But this gait is very rough, and so a pacing horse is generally not ridden, only driven. The advantage to the pace is that it is a much faster gait and makes for very sporty race watching. The breed of horse that races in harness is known as a standard bred, after the standard race distance of one mile, and while both trotters and pacers are the same breed, their records are kept separately because they don't compete together. Now, of course, someone like Leland Stanford, who owned mansions in Sacramento, San Francisco, and Santa Clara County, would not be satisfied with owning any ordinary horses. They had to be the best. As a matter of fact, he became obsessed with having only the best horses, the best trainers, the best facilities, and the best training protocols. He built a top-class facility at his country home in Santa Clara County, which he named Palo Alto, or Tall Tree. Winning races was important, but it was secondary to having the best breeding and training program in California, if not the country. Stanford became a true aficionado of the horse. 
He wasn't exactly a horseman at first. He hired people for that. But as a diligent student, he became one. He invested countless hours in coming to understand every minuscule detail about the care and training of his horses. His property, the Palo Alto Stock Farm, was in its time among the top breeding programs in the West. It would eventually become the grounds of Stanford University, named after Leland Stanford Jr., who died of consumption at the age of 15 while the family was on an extended visit to Europe. Stanford searched out and purchased the best horses available and brought in breeding stock from across the country. One of his favorites was a fabulous California-bred trotting horse who went by the name of Charlie. He was passed from owner to owner as a young horse, but Stanford saw something he liked in the horse, and he bought the colt in spite of his uncertain background. Charlie was the son of an unknown stallion named Doc, in turn apparently the son of an unknown stallion named St. Clair, and the rest of his pedigree was unrecorded. But he was darn fast. Leland Stanford had recently purchased a steamship line by the name of Occidental and Oriental Steamship Line, to which he tipped his hat by renaming his rising star Occident. I went looking for information related to Occident's race record, since a number of sources cite him as a world record holder in 1873, but all the sources I could find for trotting speed records give no record for that year. A little more searching, and I did find one piece from Trotter and Pacer magazine, 1929, that made a sort of circuitous statement. It doesn't actually state anything clearly, but suggests that Occident held the record time for the year 1873. If you're able to follow this at all, I'll help you out by saying that got by a son of means grandson because get is the offspring of a male horse, which we call the sire. The dam is the mother, spelled D-A-M, and blood means parentage, so that unknown blood means without a recorded pedigree. A speed given as 217 means 2 minutes 17 seconds for the mile distance. This paragraph is only two sentences, but stick with me because the nested phrases seem to take us somewhere at the end. Quote, With the 217 mile officially and unofficially established, Goldsmith Maid desisted for the season as to top work, although she trotted at 217 and a half at Indianapolis a week after the Milwaukee Triumph. But she began early in 1872, trotting June 9th at Boston in 216 and three quarters. Nor did she achieve another championship mile that year. Nor in 1873, for that matter, and in the meantime, a California gelding, Occident, pedigree not much since he was got by a son of St. Clair, a pacer of unknown blood, and his dam, who was given the high-sounding name of Mater Occident after her progeny had become a star, is recorded as pedigree not traced, which means nobody knew anything about it. Breeders of those days, and there were plenty of them, did not like to even think about a champion trotter being sired by the son of a pacer minus a pedigree, dam untraced, so Occident was forgotten as soon as possible, and few today recall him as once wearer of the trotting crown. End quote. In other words, Stanford's prized horse was a world record holder in 1873, 
but his parents were pretty much unknown, so his time was not recorded in the breed records for the year. His lifetime record is given in several places as 216 and three quarters. Having never made the record books for his race times on the track, Occident was about to trot his way into a different sort of history. As an obsessive student of equine locomotion, Stanford was looking for the keys that would allow him to shave the precious fractions of a second off his horse's times, and he was certain that one of those keys was tied to biomechanics. He was looking for evidence of that moment of suspension in the horse's gates, which at the time was called unsupported transit. In other words, they were looking to show that there was a moment when the animal was not supported by a foot in contact with the ground. He knew just the guy to help, too. But in order to prove the point, Mybridge would need to slow down time. He would need to be the first person to split the second. As I said before, we know now that there is suspension in the horse's gates because we've seen it in recorded images. But the images that they had seen in the middle of the 1800s were observed only by the human eye and adjusted by the human mind, by painters of the day who would record in art only what they had seen or what they thought they had seen. These images showed the horse in this flying gallop, or what we now call the modified flying gallop, with its hind feet just leaving the ground. Depiction of a trotting horse existed, but was unusual. No one was certain what was really happening, and in 1872, Stanford was looking to change that. It's often said that Leland Stanford came to Mybridge to settle a $25,000 wager, There really isn't any evidence to support that story. One thing we're confident about is that more than anything, he was caught up in the importance of being right. He wanted the best and fastest racehorses more than he wanted to win races. Not so much to be the winner as because of the importance of having the best horses and being right about what he thought was happening. He demanded answers and was willing to spend money to get them. Mybridge knew from the outset that what Stanford wanted could not be done, and he said so. Stanford seems to have said, This is what I want to do. And Mybridge said, It can't be done. You can imagine this happening in any time period. The tycoon says, This is what we're going to do. And then the engineer says, It can't be done. And then the tycoon says, Well, what if funds were unlimited? And then the engineer says, Well... If funds were unlimited, I might be able to do it. Let me put my mind to it and see what it would take. When Stanford made the original request, there was no existing use of current technology and process that would allow this sort of thing to be accomplished. A reported sum of $2,000 for the project may have helped encourage Mybridge a little, with added financial backing for technology to get the job done. So Mybridge set to work to make it happen. He was fascinated by the technology, but he was also an exceedingly focused person, which is a good quality in a professional photographer in the mid-1800s when the technology was so new and when simply getting a usable image required such obsessive and flawless attention to detail. Remember, at this time, the camera's shutter was basically the photographer's hat. 
he would hang his hat over the lens of the camera and then set up the unexposed plate. He'd lift off the hat, wait a second or two, and then put the hat back on the camera and pull out the plate to process right there on the scene. That was just not going to work if they were going to have instantaneous photography, which is what this was beginning to be called. The struggle in these early days of photography was really just to get a usable image. After they had mastered making the image clear and accurate, photographers began to work toward recording the image more quickly. The wet plate collodion process was the best they had, but to record detail in an image still required a couple of seconds of exposure time in order to capture the light onto the emulsion. As long as they were using this process, they would always be starved for light because the process was so slow. If you were going to be able to stop the motion of a trotter at full speed, Mybridge would need a much faster exposure speed, which was going to require vastly more light on the image. The first solution Mybridge fashioned was a simple one, not obvious, perhaps, except for someone who had spent years shooting stereoptic images. He set up two lenses to expose the plate, arranged in a sort of cross-eyed manner such that they would both record the same image in the same place, effectively doubling the light landing on the emulsion. Next, he had to brighten up the picture he was going to shoot. The first horse to be recorded this way was this horse I've already mentioned by the name of Occident, who was by this time probably as famous as any trotting horse in the country, but certainly among the most famous trotting horses on the West Coast. Occident was pretty dark-colored, so to increase the incoming light on the background of the image, Mybridge set up an outdoor studio at the Union Racetrack in Sacramento. He hung up a long row of white sheets alongside the track, angled toward the sky to catch the reflected light. He put more sheets on the ground as well to brighten the entire area. Occident saw no good reason whatsoever to pull his racing sulky at a trot over these sheets on the ground, and so it seems that training him to cross the sheets was an unexpected challenge of the project. But he learned it, and the crew came another step closer to success. They were ready to take their first test shots, and so Mybridge stood in front of the camera and lifted his hat, exposing the image as the horse passed. Not surprisingly, the image was not even a meaningful blur. A couple days of trying to expose the image in this way, and it was clear the human hand was not fast enough. Mybridge went back to the drawing board. He needed a way to expose the image in just a flash. It was impossible to do by hand, since the shutter needed to open and close again in a fraction of a second. He rigged up a mechanical guillotine shutter, for the camera. Two pieces of wood would slide past each other, pulled on an elastic band, and expose the image for an instant as Occident passed the camera. In 1872, Edward Mybridge captured a few blurry, though complete, images of Occident trotting in front of the white backdrop at Union Racetrack, and indeed they captured at least one image of him with all four feet off the ground. In his book, The Inventor and the Tycoon, Edward Ball tells us what they saw, according to the Alta California newspaper, which ran the first report. Quote, 
On the third day, Mr. Mybridge, having studied the matter thoroughly, contrived to have two boards slip past each other by touching a spring, and in so doing, to leave an eighth of an inch opening for the five hundredth part of a second as the horse passed, and by an arrangement of double lenses, crossed, secured a negative that shows occident in full motion, a perfect likeness of the celebrated horse. The space of time was so small that the spokes of the sulky were caught as if they were not in motion. End quote. The details of the process that was used are well described. He stacked all of his innovation together in combination, the sheets on the background, the two cross lenses, and the spring-loaded, hand-released shutter. But in spite of the wonder that came from it, Ball tells more about the outcome of this first effort. Quote, these tricks, plus the trick of the sheets, produced the photographs Stanford wanted. Mybridge said that the pictures that resulted were sufficiently sharp to give a recognizable silhouette portrait of the driver, and some of them exhibited the horse with all four of his feet clearly lifted above the surface of the ground. Still, the result was shadowy and indistinct. Good enough to satisfy Stanford's curiosity— but not good enough to print and distribute. End quote. Those images, unfortunately, are now lost to us, the way we understand it, because the images were not actually terribly clear. In the end, one of them was duplicated for posterity, as a lithograph by John Cameron working for Courier and Ives. The images we see of Occident today are actually duplications of that original photograph from 1872 which no longer exists. The following year, these experiments continued on at San Francisco's Bay District track. Mybridge improved his shutter release by having the wheel of the sulky trigger it with a thread across the track. He set up a darkroom tent, hired an assistant, and made only marginal progress. He did get usable pictures, though, of both Occident and another horse by the name of Abe Edgington and took some of them to newspaper offices to report the news, which spread around the world. In any case, Stanford had proved his point in 1872, and Mybridge had squeezed every photon of light that he could onto a glass plate to get an almost usable image of Occident demonstrating unsupported transit, the moment of suspension. Again, Edward Mybridge had made a name for himself and we suddenly knew something we had suspected, but really never known for certain about horses. This all happened about the same time that Mr. Mybridge married the fascinating and troublesome Flora Shawcross Stone, before the incident at the Yellow Jacket Mine, and before his self-imposed professional exile to South America. It was a couple years after his return from South America, before Stanford and Mybridge would go back to work on this collaboration, and it made all the difference that phototechnology had advanced five years since the original pictures of Occident were made. And that is our story for next time on A Time for Horses. Thanks for joining me on this little technological journey. I'll be back in a few weeks with the conclusion of this tale. 
in which we tie together the past and the future to see just what sort of contribution was made by this curious man who split the second and saved the evidence. If you're listening to our show on the web, you may already know that our website is atimeforhorses.com, and you'll find the notes for this episode at atimeforhorses.com forward slash Occident. In the meantime, you know what makes a good podcast great? More listeners. So please, if you haven't done so yet, do the three R's. Go to your podcatcher of choice and rate, review, and recommend the show. That's how people out there in the interwebs can find us. You can like, follow, or add us, and then share, tweet, or tell someone the old-fashioned way that you are enjoying our show. If you're new to the concept of listening to a podcast, I'm really glad to hear it. You can subscribe to the show for free and never miss an episode. Just go to atimeforhorses.com forward slash subscribe for links to the various places where you can find us. Thanks for giving me your ear space. I'll see you next time. Thank you.